what I'd like to talk about with you today is the Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is almost upon us. And when you think Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah, um, generally we think Akedah um, and the Binding of Isaac, which of course takes place in the Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah. One of the strange parts about the Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah, though, is that it is not just the Akedah, which is to say that we didn't just take the Akedah and divide it up into however many aliyahs which we were going to structure um, the Rosh Hashanah davening with. But for some reason, the Kriya on Rosh Hashanah starts before the So the question is, why? Is it because the Akedah was too short? and we didn't want Elias to be three or four psukim long? Or is it, is it because we wanted some sort of dramatic lead-up to the Akedah, and the Akedah is really what it's all about? Or is it because we're supposed to relate to the entire Kriya of Rosh Hashanah, and the entire Kriya, there's something that's going on before the Akedah, which is somehow essentially connected to the Akedah? That's really kind of the question. Um, so that's really the, in a nutshell, that's the question which I want to explore with you tonight, which is how do we understand the entire Kriya? I'll say now that this is a work in progress. I do not know if I have the answer to this question. Uh, it's something which I really want to explore with you. I have some thoughts about it. Um, but th my suspicion is that of the three options I gave you, which is to say... Um, it's really about the Akedah, and uh, we just needed to, uh, or the two options I gave you, we just sort of threw some stuff together at the beginning, uh, or that there's an essential connection. I think that there is an essential connection. Um, it would be nice if that were true, um, and I think it, in fact, is true. But figuring out what that connection is is not so simple. The Kriya for Rosh Hashanah actually begins in Perak Chaf Aleph, which you see right over here. Hashem pakarat Sarah. It's when Hashem remembers Sarah and gives her Isaac. So, you know, you might say, well, that's a nice Rosh Hashanah theme. And in fact, of course, the Rosh Hashanah themes generally, if you look at the piyutim in the Machzor, so the piyutim, the various um, poems, refer, of course, to the Akedah and perhaps even to the birth of Isaac, but they don't refer to the very uncomfortable incident which takes place in between these two events, which is Girish Yishmael the expulsion of Ishmael. And the expulsion of Ishmael is right there, smack in the middle of the Rosh Hashanah reading. And it, frankly, it's just one of these really uncomfortable stories, the kind of thing that you wouldn't really want to bring up on Rosh Hashanah. Um, a story of division within the family, a story in which nobody really looks terribly good, um, all the way from Sarah to Avram to Hagar to Ishmael. Nobody really comes out of there shining. And whereas you can look at the story of the Akedah if you wanted to as a story of untrammeled he of heroism on the part of Avram, if you wanted to, but um, it is difficult to look at the story of the expulsion of Yishmael as a heroic story in any kind of way. And the question, of course, becomes what's it doing here and why don't we just ignore it on Rosh Hashanah? Why are we confronting it on Rosh Hashanah? Again, I don't know that I know the answer to this, but I'd like to explore this with you tonight. What is this story doing, A, as part of the Rosh Hashanah davening, and B, how, if at all, is this story connected to the story of the Akedah? 
the Binding of Isaac, which is the centerpiece. So that, that's kind of the theme I want to talk with you about tonight. We'll do this in two parts, um, essentially, with a little break for dinner. Um, let me begin, if I can, with um, with a Rashi. And maybe we'll just talk about what this Rashi might mean. Um, very strange Rashi. Um, how many Rashi's we talk about now? We'll talk about one Rashi. So Rashi is bothered by the um, juxtaposition of the story of the Akedah with the story of the expulsion of Ishmael. Um, and the, the real truth is that Rashi begins to make a connection between them. Um, and what, I guess one of the questions which we'll talk about is, does this connection come out of thin air? Is there any textual support for what it is that Rashi is saying? I want to focus on two Rashis. These are Rashis quoting Midrashim. And as usual, Midrashim are not the easiest things in the world to understand. At face value, they seem to leave us with some very great questions. I'm going to... Sounds like a cell phone interfering with a microphone. I wonder if it's my cell phone. We'll turn it, put on all systems off just in case. Okay. Sounds like it's not off yet. Okay, we'll put this here. Do me a favor. Please remind me to take this at the end of the day. All right, I'm going to experiment and see if I can bring this Rashi up on the screen here, right over here. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, let's see. All right, let's look at these two Rashis over here. Rashi number one. If you can't read this on the screen, just follow along with me. Rashi says the following. Rashi's struggling with a question that many of us struggle with with the Akeda, which is what in blazes is going on? God supposedly likes this fellow, and all of a sudden he comes out and says, look, I have a great idea. Why don't you take your child to the top of the mountain and kill him? And then at the very end of this, when he says, just kidding, bring him down now. Um, why would God do such a thing? So Rashi begins his discussion by noting the opening words in the Akedah story, which are, and it happened after these things. So if you start a story by saying it had happened after these things, you are suggesting that there's some connection between those things and these things, some connection between what happened earlier and what happens now. So the Medrash, which Rashi quotes, picks up on this and explores what these things are. Okay? So here's the Midrashic take on what these things are. Yeshem Rabbaseinu Omrim Rashi says, Gemara and Sanhedrin, that when it says, it means, it means after the words of the Satan, the prosecuting angel of heaven. That's what provoked the test of the Akedah. There was a discussion between God and Satan in heaven, which of course reminds you of which biblical book? Eov. Starting to sound a lot like Eov, and we're going to kind of wonder why the Medrash is 
seeming to copy an Eov kind of story here, but without getting too derailed into that thought immediately, let's just keep on reading the Medrash to see what the Medrash says. What happened was there was a little exchange between God and the Satan. The Satan was doing what he does best, which is prosecuting, and he was saying, He said, you know, from any suda, any meal which Avram gave, you know, I'm looking at his food, I'm looking at his daily intake here, I'm looking at how he does his, his dinner plans, and I'm noticing something kind of disturbing God, the, the Satan says. I'm seeing that in the whole meal plan, there's never anything for you, right, God? There's never any, you know, there's lots of meat, but I'm not seeing any carbonos. I'm not seeing that he's offering you anything, and I'm getting a little concerned, says the Satan. Omar Lo. God replies back to him, Klum asa elabishvil bano. Is he making these meals for anyone other than his son? Whatever that means, and we'll explore that. If I would tell him, excuse me, if I would say, if I would say to him, forget offering any animal, to offer me him, that child himself, you'll see he wouldn't stop. He would give him to me. Okay? And that's what happened. Um, so this is one of these very strange midrashim. Like where it blazes does the midrash get this? I mean, it just picks this idea out of a hat. And what's it doing copying Eov? Introduction to Eov, where does it get that from? And where does it get this from? It just seems like, you know, I always say that one of the most pernicious books is the little midrash says. And it's midrashim are terrific. The problem is, is that if you read Midrashim in a vacuum, it turns out to be very pernicious. If you read stories like this and you tell them to your kids and you don't give them any context and you don't give them any way of linking this to the Pshut Mikra, they become very confused. It seems like you are replacing Pshat with Medrash and that is very disconcerting to kids and kids later on will grow up and leap through their Chumashim and look for these things and they will not find them and then see as a faith how you know, when I'm looking at the Akedah, I don't see the Satan here. And you told me that the Satan was here, and he's not here. And I think one of the problems we often make is that we fail to distinguish Pshat. Medrash is not the same thing as saying I love Pshat, and I think Medrash deal with. Is this... This is going on and off. Are you okay? All right, fine. All right. Uh, I'm not arguing that we should only be looking at Medrash. What I'm looking at, what I'm suggesting is that we should kind of have the sophistication to see that there are two, you know, when we say Shivim Panim Torah, we should really mean it. Which means that when we say that there are 70 faces to the Torah, we should mean it. What do I mean by that? We should mean that the Torah is accessible on many different levels. It's a cliche. We always say it's true, but we rarely actually live by cliche. To live by that cliche means that you have to understand that the Torah is simultaneously accessible at different levels and there's interplay between the different levels so the levels all play off on each other. What that means the analogy which I like to give to this is um, piano playing. Right? If you're playing piano and you're using your right hand 
The right hand of the piano sounds like the melody, right? The left hand carries the harmony. What happens if you're only listening to the right hand? What will it sound like? Old MacDonald had a farm. What's it going to sound like? It's going to sound like Old MacDonald had a farm. It's not going to be very fancy, but it'll sound like Old MacDonald had a farm. Now, let's say you're just listening to the left hand. What's it going to sound like? Nothing. It's going to sound like a lot of nonsense. But if you put the left hand and the right hand together, then it's really going to sound like Old MacDonald had a farm. It's going to be Old MacDonald had a farm in three dimensions. There's going to be depth. There's going to be richness. You can conceive of the right hand as pshat and the left hand as medrash. Right? The left hand is the harmony for the pshat. If you listen to it in a vacuum, it doesn't make any sense. But if you listen to it in relationship with the melody, it's accentuating different things in the melody. It's picking up on things and saying, you see that? Here's what's going on. You see this? Right? Try this shade of color on that. So it behooves us to not read these things in a vacuum. The problem with the little medrash says is it presents it in a vacuum. But if instead of reading it in a vacuum, you say, okay, what's really happening in pshat? Now, what's happening in Drash, and how do these things interrelate? So then you've got a story going. So that's going to be our challenge, bringing some of these Midrashim back to the text and seeing where they're coming from and what it all means. But this is one very strange Midrash. Where does the Midrash get this from, this strange dialogue between God and the Satan, which is supposed to precede the Akedah? And what does that tell us, maybe, about Rosh Hashanah? By the way, I don't know if we'll get this tonight, to this tonight. If we don't, remind me, because we really, it would be really fun to get back to this. But if we don't get back to this, at least do it for homework, okay? So the, the thing to get back to here is to actually look more carefully at Sefer Eov. Because it seems very clear that Chazal are playing off of Sefer Eov. We actually read the introduction of Sefer Eov, which Chazal are sort of parodying over here. It, it pays because... I think part of the clues that they have to what they're saying comes not just from our text, but also from Sefer Eov. It's bringing together, looking at Sefer Eov together with our text seems to yield the interpretation which they give. So if I don't remember, let's try to bring you back to that text in Sefer Eov before the night is through. Okay, here's the second Chazal which I want to, you to have in the back of your minds as we go forward. Okay? Another really strange Chazal. Tell me why this Chazal is so strange. Look at over here, Pasuk Chaf over here. Rashi and Pasuk Chaf. Kach na. Rashi is bothered by na. In the Akedah, take please. Take please your son, your only son. If it's an order, what's the please doing there? Right? Ain na ela lashon bakasha, Rashi says. The word na always means lashon bakasha. It always means please. What's God doing saying please if he's ordering Abraham to do something he doesn't like? What's the please? Here's Rashi's answer, again, based upon the Medrash. Amr <coughs> lo, and the Medrash itself, Rashi here is making the Medrash a little bit more concise. I'll fill in what the Medrash says in greater detail. It's a Medrash in Bracious Rabbah. But here's what Rashi says. Amr lo, b'vakasha mimcha. I'm asking this for this, I'm asking this nicely from you. I am, I am requesting something of you. What am I requesting? Do me a favor, Abraham. I want you to please um, stand this test. Right? What's, what's the word? How do you say this in English? Withstand. Please withstand this test. So people shouldn't say the first tests were nothing. Very strange. We all know that the Akedah is supposed to be the climax of Abraham's ten trials. There's supposed to be ten trials, according to Chazal, that Abraham went. 
The tenth is the Akedah. Why do we need ten? We already had nine. Zuck the Medrash. Ein na elalashan bakasha. Na means please. It was please because please do withstand this last test. The people shouldn't say the first nine were nothing. The Medrash elaborating on this, this is a concise version of the Medrash, gives an analogy. The analogy which the Medrash says is it's analogous to a king who speaks to his great warrior. The king says to his great warrior, do me a favor, go out and fight this one last great battle for me. And the reason why I'm asking you to fight this great battle for me, even though you've been victorious time after time, is so that people shouldn't look at you and say, Harishonos ein behem mamash. All those first battles were nothing. Ha! Those battles, those were nothing. Right? So fight this last one that's harder than all of them, so, you can prove, so you'll prove that the first ones really were something. Okay, what's so strange about this Medrash? Let's actually put ourselves... All right, let's role play this. I'll be God, you be Abraham, okay? All right. So you're probably wondering, Abraham, why I want you to do this crazy thing. Go up to the top of the mountain, kill your child. You think maybe it's a little hard, right? Okay, let me explain it to you. See, Abraham, you know, I know you've gone through a lot of hard things in your life, lots of trials, infertility, long time. I kept on telling you you're going to have a kid. Never really happened. All the difficult things you went through. It's been a very rough life. But, you know, I realize you've been through nine trials. Do me a favor, though. I don't want people talking, okay? I'm concerned about our PR over here. I think they are going to... People are going to diss you. They're, they're just going to disrespect what you've done, maybe. You know, it's true you did pass these things, but how about one last one just to show them, right? Because otherwise they'll complain that the first nine were nothing. What do you think, Abraham? Should we, let's, let's do this thing at the top of the mountain. How, what do you say? What would you say? What? Thanks, but those things, right? What do you mean the first nine were nothing? Like, were they trials or weren't they trials? Between us, God. Huh? We know they were something, right? They were really trials. If they were trials, I passed the trials. What are you telling me? People are going to say, you know, what? I, this isn't Madison Avenue over here, right? This is, this is you and me, God. You know they were something. And anyway, what are people going to complain about? I passed them, right? So, so, so now they're going to come back and say, it's like after you won the World Series, right? How about an eighth game? Right? Everyone's going to say, oh, uh, the first four, you swept them, big deal. Let's see you win five. What do you mean four out of seven? Let's see you win five. Those aren't the rules. What do you mean? You're changing the rules at the end? Of no? I mean, there's a very strange medrash. What's the medrash saying? Uh, you know, the first ones, I'll say, are nothing. Right? I need, I need you one last time. So we have two very strange medrashim that are both seeking to anticipate a sort of prelude to the Akedah. Medrash number one anticipates it in a, in a mythical discussion between Satan and God that has echoes of Eov, and Medrash number two anticipates it in terms of people casting aspersions upon the first nine. Yeah, so very odd. Yep. Okay, I realize that that theory is out there. The theory out there is that other religions were based upon infanticide and the, servants of in the service of appeasing the gods, and maybe the Akedah was meant to disprove this. But even if you were to take such a theory, this is not the theory the Midrashim are taking. The Midrashim are suggesting other theories. One theory is it's a conversation between God and the Satan. Another theory is the first nine were nothing. The Midrash is not 
you know, is, that might be a theory which you can advance, but it's not the Medrash's theory. Right now, I'm interested in putting ourselves in the Medrash's shoes, asking what are these rabbis thinking? Are they crazy? What are they telling me? What do the rabbis want me to think when they're telling me these stories? What do they want me to think when they're saying the first nine were nothing? What are they wanting me to think when they're saying this discussion with the Satan? These are the kinds of things which, you know, you read them in a little art scroll book, a little medrash says, and it seems like a little vort, you know, it, it seems like Shalashudas Torah. Shalashudas Torah is a very dangerous thing. There's even this book out there, you know, and this book, I forget, we won't talk about who published it, that says, like, something to say. That's the name of it, right? Like, so, we're, like, little verter, little things that you could say in Chumr, so that you shouldn't look like a fool, you have something to say. So, like, these are the medrash in which you could, like, in the something to say category, it's like you tell your friend, oh, like, I heard a medrash, isn't that interesting? And then you go on, you think nothing of it. Why? Because you're not taking it seriously. Both you and he know this isn't to be taken seriously. I'm just telling you a vort. It's like a social grace. It's just something we do over meals, right? But if we're really taking it seriously, you got to, like, you can't sleep at night. What are they telling me? Like, are they nuts? What, what do they mean? Yes. They are. I think they are. They're asking why, how could, I mean, they're definitely dealing with a very, I'm, I make no bones about it. It's a very difficult theological question, how God can make such a request. I'm the first guy to admit that. I'm saying, but, and clearly the sages are trying to grapple with this. How could God make such a difficult request? The question is, what, what do they mean to say? All right, I don't want to take too many theories right now because we don't really have any basis for theories right now. All we have is two midrashim that we can't understand. The next thing we've got to do is do some work. And we have to, having seen some midrashim that we don't understand, the next thing we've got to do, having seen the left hand that makes no sense, the next thing to do is look at the right hand and see what the right hand is doing and then see how we can put them all together. Let's get back to the first thing I talked about. On Rosh Hashanah, we read both stories. We read the story of Girish Ishmael and we read the story of the Akedah. Why? Is there some connection between those stories? Are they, is it just happenstance? Is it just that the story in chapter 21 happens to precede chapter 22? Or is it that there's something substantial which connects them, and maybe that's why they all form the Kriya on Rosh Hashanah? The, so, <clears throat> as we will see, one of these midrashim seems to backhandedly be alluding to the story of Girish Ishmael. Let's go back to the Satan story for a second and just look at it a little bit more carefully. What do you think the sages meant when they said that Satan's complaint was, Mikol Su'uda Sha'asa, from all the meals that he gave, he never gave a, never gave a, never gave anything to you, God. And then to which God says, Klum Asa Elabishvil Bno, did he ever do these meals for anyone other than his son? What were they saying, did he ever do these meals for anything other than his son? They're actually referring to something in a pshat. They're referring to a particular meal. A particular feast, the only feast we know of, by the way, that Abraham ever made. The, the weaning feast. The feast with which Ishmael was, uh, not Ishmael, the feast with which Isaac was weaned. That's what they're referring to. Klum asa elabishvil bano. Did he make that feast for anyone other than Isaac? So interestingly enough, Chazal are finding a touchstone for the story of the Akedah in chapter 21 earlier in the story of the Rosh Hashanah reading. If you want to understand the Akedah, Chazal are really saying, you've got to understand that feast. You've got to understand that feast back there that was made for Isaac, which God responded, did he do it for anyone but Isaac? 
See, if I tell you to take Isaac himself and kill him, he'll give him to you. Where are Chazal coming from with that? Wherever they're coming from, and we haven't yet discovered it, what is interesting is that you see that Chazal themselves are connecting these two stories. Chazal are connecting the beginning of the Rosh Hashanah reading, the story of the birth of Isaac and the weaning feast, with the end of the Rosh Hashanah story, which is the Akedah. It's up to us to figure out why. So with no further ado, I'm going to turn that question over to you. Okay, and here's what I'm going to do. Um, all right, here's what we're going to do. <coughs> um, I want you to read chapter, the beginning of chapter 21, which is the story of the birth of Isaac, the weaning feast, and then the story of the expulsion of Ishmael. Okay? And I want you to do two things while you read it. We're not going to... Uh, so if you could get the chumashim ready, I'm going to distribute them in one second. Here's what we're going to do. As you read this story, I want you to keep two questions in mind. Question number one is, what are the questions that any intelligent person would ask upon first reading chapter 21, upon first reading the story of the birth of Isaac and the expulsion of Ishmael, the weaning feast and the expulsion of Ishmael? You're reading it, not connected to the Akedah, whatever. You just want to know... If I'm an intelligent person, what questions should I be asking about this story just based upon the text? That is the first thing you're looking for. But you're also looking for something else. Are there any clues that substantiate what the sages are saying? The sages are making a connection between these stories, between the birth of Isaac, the weaning feast, the expulsion of Ishmael, and the binding of Isaac, the Akedah. Are there any clues in the text, in the right hand, that substantiate these connections? I want you to see if you can find any connection at all, any textual connections, between the story of the expulsion of Ishmael and the binding of Isaac. Okay? So you're looking at two things. What are the questions in chapter 21? A. B. What connections are there, if any, textually, seem to substantiate the idea that there's some connection between these stories? the expulsion of Ishmael and the Akedah. Is there anything that's happening in the expulsion of Ishmael that reminds you of what's going to happen a chapter later in the Akedah? See if you can keep a log of those. Do this with a Chavrusa. Do this with the person sitting next to you or a Tribrusa, right? The three people sitting next to you, right? I'm going to give you about, I'm going to be benevolent, let's say eight minutes, all right? Eight minutes to look this through, speed reading Evelyn Wood style, and you are going to come up with what you can and we will reconvene, Okay? Go ahead. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you are out of time. Put your papers down. Hand them in towards the front. Okay. So, what do you say? You got a chance to look at chapter 21 a little carefully? Is there anything about chapter 21, the story? Uh, let's start with, uh, let's not get to the questions on the text yet. We'll get back to that. Let's just start by looking at the story of the expulsion of Ishmael and the Al-Qaeda. Is there anything about these two stories that seem connected? Yes. Good. So, interestingly, both stories begin with Abraham waking up early in the morning. Vayashkem Abraham Baboker. 
Abraham wakes up early in the morning and he, the, uh, the Akedah presents itself and Abraham wakes up early in the morning and he goes and he sends Hagar out. So we have waking up early in the morning. Yes. Okay, good. Both begin broadly, well, broadly speaking, in very broad terms, both stories are about the possible death of Abraham's child. It's just two different children. One is a near-death experience for Ishmael. The other is a near-death experience for Isaac. So in very broad terms, they're similar. But you might say, okay, those terms are too broad. But then as we begin to look more carefully, we find a number of very particular similarities. Number one, both stories begin with a command from God, although not exactly quite the same. That's, we have to be careful about stretching that. In other words, in the Akedah, there is a direct command to sacrifice Isaac. Now, even though Chazal say it's not really direct because it was phrased in such a way, you know the Rashi I'm referring to, God never said, kill him, right? God just said, Ha'aleu la'ola, right? I told you to bring him to the top of the mountain. You brought him to the top of the mountain. Now bring him down. Nevertheless, I think we have to be, you have to understand how to interpret that Chazal. I don't think the way to interpret that Chazal is that the moral of the story of the Akedah is that Abraham did not know how to read a Pasuk. Abraham misinterpreted God. And if only he would have been a little bit more careful, we never would have had to go through the whole Akedah problem. If only he understood that Abraham, that God, what God really meant when he said, Hallelujah, we would have been spared the whole thing. Poor Abraham, it was a practical joke. God just said, Hallelujah, I never said kill him. Right? No, I don't think that's what it means. God meant for Abraham to misinterpret him. The sages are just dealing with a theological problem. The theological problem is, how does God lie? If God is the seal of truth, how does God lie? Answer is, God didn't lie. God said things that had different ways of interpreting them. Clearly, in a vacuum, if you say, go bring up your child on the top of the mountain as an offering, right? clearly that means kill him. Nevertheless, in retrospect that he's not dead, there is another way to interpret those words. I said, bring him up. I never said kill him. I said bring him up. The word for Ola offering in, in Hebrew is to bring up. I said bring him up. You brought him up. Now bring him down. So, <clears throat> but the bottom line is, is that however you interpret that Chazal, it's clear that God is in essence commanding Abraham to go take his child and kill him. Even though God is involved in the expulsion of Ishmael, he's not involved in that kind of way. God never says go kill Ishmael. God does say, go listen to Sarah when he expels him, but it's a long way from go listen to Sarah when you expel him to go kill Ishmael. That's not really exactly the same, but I'm willing to buy it in a larger sense. Both stories begin with a command from God. Both stories end, interestingly enough, with the intervention of an angel who saves the day. Okay, so both stories have an angel that saves the day. The angel that saves the day in the Akedah is the angel that stays Abraham's hand when he's ready to shecht his son. The angel that saves the day in the story of the expulsion of Ishmael is the angel who points out the existence of the life-saving well to Hagar. Okay, anything else about these stories that remind you one of the other? Precisely, the Beersheba business. In particular, both stories end... Well, I'm, uh, the, the Beersheba business, which is that both stories end, if I'm not mistaken, in Beersheba. Ishmael, 
right, becomes an archer in Beersheba and, and finds his destiny in Beersheba. And of course, um, the end of the Akedah, at the end of the Akedah, what is it? Abraham goes, if I'm not mistaken, and heads towards Beersheba Yachdov. The question, some ambiguity as to who he's with, but in any case, he's heading off to Beersheba. So both stories end in Beersheba, yes. Okay, good. So in both cases, there is what you might call in English a sudden seeing. Okay? There's an act of sudden seeing and a life-saving act of sudden seeing. The life-saving act of sudden seeing in the Akedah is suddenly Abraham sees the ram and the ram is an alternative to death. Right? He sees the ram caught in the thickets and there is sudden seeing on the part of Hagar, albeit with different language, which is, um, what is this language? When God opens her eyes and she sees the well. So in both cases, there is this sort of divinely assisted, perhaps, seeing of an alternative which allows for life to proceed. All right, so so far we have we have sudden seeing, we have command of God at the beginning, angel who saves the day at the end, we have Beersheba, we're getting good, what else? but a very similar blessing, right? Which is that both stories end with the children of Abraham being blessed in almost the same way. The blessing that each of them gets, which is they're going to have lots of kids. With, um, with Isaac, it's a little bit more, as he says, expansive. But with Ishmael, it's also the same thing, right? That he's going to have lots of kids. So you have a blessing that's kind of the same. Yes, All right, so you have a mirror image with Sarah. In one story, Sarah is very active, and Abraham, it, more, well, not quite, but sort of. And then in another story, Sarah doesn't know what's going on. All right, maybe, yes. Okay, is there something that God sees in each case? Maybe. I mean, God sees, is there a turning point in which God, so to speak, realizes something? God realizes something, so to speak, in the Akeda story when the Akeda, um, when he sees that Abraham's a fear of God. Maybe he realizes something. I'm not sure if he realizes something in the expulsion of Ishmael story. What? He hears the voice of the Nar. By Ishmael, he must call a Nar. Here's the voice of the Nar. Okay. Maybe. Could be. Yeah. Anybody else? Uh, this direction. Somebody we haven't heard from yet? Yes. Ooh, very good. Excellent. Give that lady a free Coke. If you, li- if you listen carefully to what the, what the angel says. And by the way, just to reinforce the angel connection here, how many times in Tanakh you think you have Vayikra Malach Elohim the angel of God calls out from heaven. 
Not too many, twice. The only two times are in these two stories. So the only two times in Tanakh you have an angel of God calling out from heaven, it's in chapter 21 and chapter 22. And not only that, the angel says exactly the opposite things. Okay? To Hagar, one parent of, of Abraham, it's hachaziki et yadechba, which means hold his hand. She's not holding his hand. Touch him benevolently. Touch him benevolently. Hold his hand. What's the angel saying to Abraham? Don't touch him malevolently. Al tishlach yadchalanar. Don't touch him. It's a very fascinating. Touch, don't touch. Touch benevolently, don't touch malevolently. Same, right? It's the same language of the angel. Opposite things happening. Okay, anybody else? Yes. We're with Hagar, yeah. Okay, except that that true, although it does happen afterwards. In other words, if you listen to what the angel says, the angel says, "Ata yadati ki lokimata." Now, so in other words, there is still the expression of a rationale for stopping the situation. But you're right, it doesn't happen before, and it's not God who says it. So there is God saying it in story one, and God not saying it in story two. Yeah? And the other thing is that they both kind of end in, you know, the, um, you're, you're given information about the continuity of both families. Okay, good. That's another point. Let's point that, this is a very important point. What happens after the Akeda? What's the main story after the Akeda? It's the story of Isaac finding a wife in the beginning of Chayesara. What happens immediately after the expulsion of Ishmael? What's the next story? Ishmael finding a wife. In one case, Abraham finds a wife for Isaac. In the other case, now Abraham's out of Ishmael's life. His mother finds him a wife, merits Mitzrayim from Mitzrayim. So in both cases, both stories end with a chuppah, interestingly enough, for each of these children. Yes, in the back. Correct. The I presumably is the Malach speaking on behalf of God. That would be the simple shot. The Malach is really nothing but a messenger. It doesn't really have an independent existence. So the Malach seems to be paraphrasing, paraphrasing God. Okay, any other connections between these stories? Yes. What is this, the intermediate story about the naming of the Er Sheba and the brief made between Abraham and uh, Abimelech? And, and okay. the name of the Er Sheba comes now where in fact Right. Good question. I'm not going to get into that. I have some thoughts on that, but they are not developed, and I'm going to leave that as an I don't know for the purposes of tonight. Okay? Let's just stick to the, these two stories for now. Anything else? Yes? Correct. So in other words, the stories are pivoting around two different senses. The turning point in story number one, which allows the angel to 
provide for the life of Ishmael to continue is, the, the, is an act of hearing, when God hears the voice of Ishmael, and the pivotal point which allows God to provide for the continued life of Isaac is an act of seeing, a different sense. Now I know that you're a fearer of God, and of course, the word yure, you're wondering why I'm talking about seeing, because in Hebrew, the word yure means not just fear, but see. There's a double entendre there with seeing and fearing. Throughout the Akedah, everything is, is revolving around the sense of sight, not the sense of sound. So, he sees the place from afar. He sees the ram caught in the thicket. It's all seeing, 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 and then seeing does a little flip. And when the angel's talking about it, same language as seeing, but now it no longer means seeing, now it means fearing. What the meaning of that is, why there is that double entendre between seeing and fearing is an interesting question that will take us too far afield to talk about now. But the bottom line is, is that there seems to be the sense of hearing in one story that's pivotal, the sense of seeing in another story that's pivotal. Yes? Okay, so one interesting question is, who's the main character of the expulsion of Ishmael story? Who's the main character of the Binding of Isaac story? The Binding of Isaac story would say it's a test of Abraham, and in the expulsion of Ishmael story, it's a little less clear. But that's an interesting question. Maybe that's something which we want to focus on after, after dinner, actually, which is, who is the main character of the expulsion of Ishmael story? Is it Ishmael? Is it Sarah? Is it Avram? Who is it? Is it Hagar? Who is the main character of the expulsion of Ishmael story? In the, in the Akedah story, it's very clear, because the narrator tells us, Hashem, Avraham. She makes it very clear that the narrator considers Abraham the main character, even though you can make the case that Isaac is the one going through this, and he's the main character too, but that's not the narrator's perspective. The narrator's perspective is this is about Abraham. In the expulsion of Ishmael, it's less clear, and that's something which we want to get back to. Who is the... Who is it back? Okay, one last point, and then I'm going to, yeah. Good point. Now, what's interesting also is you'll notice specifically, and this is a crucial point, that even though the hearing, the angels hear, God's hearing of Ishmael's cries are crucial to the saving of Ishmael, what's interesting is that the narrator never tells you about those cries. So as you're actually reading the story, you don't know that Ishmael's crying. Look at the story carefully. You'll find that it says, Vatashav Mineged, she stood from afar, Vatisat Kolavatevk, Pasuk Yud Zayin. Vatisat Kolavatevk means she lifted her voice and she wailed. Who's crying? She is. What's the very next Pasuk? Vayishmael Okimat Kolanar. Right? No, that's not why. By Yishmael Akimat Kolanar, God heard the voice of the child. What do you mean God heard the voice of the child? The child's silent. You know, she's the one crying. Specifically, the Torah goes out of its way to say, even though she's crying, God's not listening to her voice. God's listening to his voice, which is kind of interesting. Yes? That is interesting. 
Yishmael's name is never mentioned. Instead, what does Yishmael always refer to? The Na'ar Or, which by the way Isaac is also referred to, or the Na'ar or also the Ben Hagar Hamitzrit, the son of Hagar, but never Yishmael, even though interestingly the name Yishmael means what? God will hear, and when does God hear him in this story? So ironically, even though this is the story in which God does finally hear him, the name, which means God hears him, isn't even mentioned in the story. Kind of interesting. So just to summarize, let me just direct you here to the quickie little PowerPoint. There's a couple other ones which you didn't get. Well, maybe you did, but your hand, I didn't call on you yet. Yeah? Oh, very good. Okay, excellent. What does the angel say? Very good. Back to the point, counterpoint with angel. Remember we said the angel is a mirror image? Then in one story, the angel says, don't touch malevolently. In the other story with the Akeda and with the binding of Isaac, it's touch benevolently. That's not the only mirror image that the, angel, that the angel says. There's another mirror too. Look carefully. What does the angel say to Abraham? Ata yadati ki yirei now I know that you're a fearer of God. What does the angel say to Hagar that's the exact opposite of that? There's a discussion of fear with Hagar too. The angel who talks about fear to, uh, to Abraham, an angel also talks about fear to Hagar, but it's the opposite. al tir Don't be afraid. In one story, don't be afraid. And the other, be afraid, be very afraid. <laughs> to Abraham, it's be afraid. Fear is a good thing. Fear God. I see that you fear God. By the way, there are opposites on another level also. I, I see that you have fear of God, that you are established as a fearer of God. With Hagar, there's no mention of God. Don't fear rather than fear. And don't fear in the future as opposed to Abraham having established himself in the past. So in every possible point in, in this discussion, it is completely opposite. Completely opposite future and past. Completely opposite is God present, is God not present. Completely opposite, do fear, do not fear, right? Don't, do not touch, do touch, malevolently, benevolently. Every last aspect of this discussion of the angel is exactly diametrically opposed. Yes? Okay, good. All right, good. All right, so we're going to get... All right, very good. So that's another crucial point, although I want to wait for a moment until we, until we get to that. But look... I know I'm specifically not repeating that point because I don't want you guys to know it yet, okay? <laughs> we're going to get back to it in just one second. I specifically obscured that. I'm glad you caught that. All right, so let's just move on for one second. Let me just summarize the points thus far, and then we'll get to Suri's point, which is also kind of crucial. All right. Briefly, what have we been talking about? I'll do my best. All right. In very general terms, the story of Hagar and Ishmael in the desert is strikingly similar to the Akedah. Two children of Abraham experience a near-death experience in the close proximity of a parent when the other parent is not really aware of what's going on, right? Which we didn't talk about. Right? Abraham is not really aware of... Um, of, of what's going on when Hagar, the mother, is going through this, and Sarah is not really aware of what's going on in the Akedah when Abraham's doing his thing. But the parallels between these stories are not limited to these broad thematic 
bold stroke parallels. A number of very particular textual details right, illuminate the parallels between them as well. And we've talked about a lot of them. Waking up early in the morning. Abraham wakes up early in the morning when he sets out on his journey with Isaac. And he wakes up early in the morning when he sets out on his journey with, with Ishmael. Here's one which he didn't get. Branches on top of the child. Remember as they're going up the mountain... Abraham places branches for the offering on top of Isaac. This little detail, which you never really pay attention to, but it says, He places the branches on top of Isaac as they're going up the mountain. A little strange. By the way, what would you, well, just to keep in mind, what would you have to do, if you've got a whole bunch of branches for an offering, what would you have to do to those branches to make sure that Isaac could carry them up on his back? You have to bind them together. Ooh, isn't that interesting? Think about the end of the story. Who gets bound? Isaac. Where is he in relation to branches at that point? On top of them. See it? In the beginning of the story, you have branches bound on top of child. By the end of the story, you got child bound on top of branches. Anyway, be that as it may, as they're going up the mountain, you have branches bound on top of child. You got branches on top of a child. Does that remind you of anything? in the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Branches on top of child. When she casts him beneath the bramble branches, right? She casts that child underneath the brambles. When you cast a child beneath brambles, you got sticks on top of child again. So you got sticks on top of child in both stories. Okay, so very interesting. You have branches on top of child in the story of Abraham, and Hagar places branches on top of Ishmael as she casts them beneath a bush. Here's another one which you didn't get. Maybe some of you did, but I didn't call on you. Fatashleich. What's the language for what Abraham does when he sends forth his hand to slaughter his son? Right? So it says, right? Avramet yado lishchot et so now, how do you spell shalach? Shin lamed chet. What does shin lamed chet mean? To send. He sends forth his hand, right, to, um, to, towards his son. Right? Do you have anything that reminds you of that? That's right. You have, what, in the story of Hagar, you have, do you have a shalach with Hagar? You do, but it's a different shalach. It's shin lamed chaf. When she throws him down, in other words, both, in both cases, the parent would be sort of complicit in bringing about the death of the child, and the word shalach is used in both cases to describe the complicity. In one, Abraham is going to kill his son by sending forth his hand. In the other, Hagar is casting down her child beneath the bramble branches. But notice that it's only a phonetic similarity, not a grammatical one, because... In one, it's shalach with a chaf. In one, it's shalach with a chet. Now think about the relationship between shalach with a chaf and shalach with a chet. Shalach with a, chaf, with a chet means to send. What does shalach with a chaf mean? To cast, to discard. Notice how similar but different those words are. One is nothing but the harsher version of the other. Which one is softer? Shalach with a chet. Right? To send, right? if I send, there's always the possibility of coming back. Shalach with a chaf is final. Shalach with a chaf is you're gone. You're out of here. There's no coming back. There's no sending and returning. It's, it's to discard. 
So what happens with Abraham, ironically, in a softer kind of way, even as he's going to kill his child, is happening with Hagar in a harsher kind of way as she casts her child underneath the bramble branches. But why is it instead of Vayashlech? Vatishlach? Vatashlech instead of Vatishlach? I don't think you can have Vatishlach with a Chaf, but maybe I'm wrong. Okay, moving on. The angels we talked before. The angel tells Avram not to, not to touch his child malevolently. We talked about this one. The angel tells Hagar to go and hold the child's hand benevolently. These are opposites. Okay? I'm sorry. Opening of the eyes, we talked about. Both Avram and Hagar experienced a divine opening of the eyes, an expansion of their field of vision to see what they couldn't see before. Both see alternatives to the death of the child they would not previously been aware of. Abraham sees another possible offering. Hagar sees a life-saving well. One story opens in Beersheba. The other closes in Beersheba. Okay? And, of course, as each story ends, the next test awaits, which is marriage. Right? Chuppah. So what, now the question which I want you to think about during dinner is, why? What does this all mean? It seems very clear that Chazal were on to something when Chazal said, if you want to understand the Akedah, you have to understand that Se'uda. You have to understand that Se'uda which led so inextricably to Girish Yishmael. These stories are intimately connected. They are connected. The text screams out to you that these stories are connected. There's a reason why we wrote, be, read these both on, on, on Rosh Hashanah. It's like they're one story. And Chazal is saying they're one story. The question is why? Why should these be one story? How is it that we, how is it that we understand them? For that, we'll need Suri's clue. But we'll talk about that after dinner. I still don't tell you what she said. Okay, so we'll break here for dinner, and then we'll come back and try to put this together. All right, um, what does it all mean? So let's talk about that. Turns out that there is another literary tool. Well, first of all, there are a number of connections between the Akeda and the story of the expulsion of Ishmael that we've not yet begun to touch on. And in those connections, I think, may lie a key to the meaning of it all. And those connections were first alluded to by Suri, and I did my best to obscure what she was saying. Um, so now it's time to come back to what she was trying to say before. Um, before I do that, I want to introduce another kind of literary tool which I'm sure you here at Drisha are familiar with and we're going to use um, right now in looking at the Akeda. And that is uh, the tool of chiasmus, right? Uh, um, chiasms. Essentially, a chiasm, is, um, a chiasm is a literary structure. We have an inverted series of parallels where the beginning of a paragraph or piece of text mirrors the end of it. The second to first element mirrors the second to last third to first, mirrors third to last, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in Kabbalah, we call these atbash systems, where Aleph mirrors Tuf, Beit mirrors Shin, Gimel mirrors Resh, et cetera, et cetera. Whenever you have a chiasm, you've got to wonder why it is that the Torah uses chiasms. We could have a whole schmooze about that. And the truth is, we don't know, but the fact is that chiasms are prevalent in the Torah. The Torah uses them a lot. Um, and in conjecturing about why, I think one of the one of the reasons 
I suspect the Torah uses them is because they're very nifty little things as if you are trying to convey a lot of meaning in a short amount of time. Um, one of the ways that a chiasm conveys meaning, but by no means the only way that a chiasm conveys meaning, is because it directs you to the center of a narrative, to the conceptual center of a narrative. A chiasm kind of goes like this, right? It's, it, it's relentlessly building towards the center. So if the Torah is telling you what the center is, what would you expect to find at the center of a narrative? Presumably something central. You would find something, a turning point. You'd find a center of gravity, something around which everything revolves. So, uh, and that, I think, is a very interesting possibility. Uh, it's a very, a very interesting thing. If the Torah is telling you what the center of gravity of a story is, that is significant. Turns out, well, let me, let me just back up. Here's a, a nifty little trick. Actually, I, I did this before with you, Adresha, for those of you who were here about a year ago when I did a talk on the rainbow. But I'm going to use the same technique right now. And basically, it goes like this. What happens when you put these two literary techniques together? L let me, which two literary techniques? Chiasms and what is called intertextuality, or um, what I've been it's called Where Have We Heard These Words Before? Until now, before we've been talking about chiasms, we've been talking about what academics like to call intertextuality or what we in Sesame Street would call Where Have We Heard These Words Before? <laughs> Basically the notion that every once in a while the Torah will quote itself. What the Torah seems to be doing in the Akedah it is quoting itself. There's a vast series of quotations in chapter 22 which bring us back to chapter 21. When the Torah is doing that, it seems to be saying that if you want to understand what's happening in chapter 22, you can't understand it without reference to chapter 21. The stories are, in, in, are inextricably connected. So one technique is intertextuality. Where have we heard those words before? Another technique is chiasmus, is chiasms. This notion of a story that's built in an inverted set of parallels leading towards the center. So here's a theoretical question that's not so theoretical that I want to ask you. Theoretical question is, what happens when you put these two literary techniques together? In other words, what happens when you find two stories that are intertextually related, where in one story there's like 15 elements which are harking back to another story, like, for example, the Akeda and the expulsion of Ishmael. And then you look a little carefully and you find that one or maybe both of these stories are actually chiasms. They're structured as chiasms, okay? What's the next thing that inquiring minds would want to know? Okay. The next thing you want to know is how to integrate these things. So in other words, what a chiasm does, among other things, it helps you identify the center of gravity of a story. So if I can identify the center of gravity of story A, and I know that story A is intertextually related to story B, so inquiring minds are going to want to know, what's the mirror of the center of story A in story B, right? Whatever I defined as the center of story A, what is its mirror in story B? If I can find that mirror, then I might have a key to understanding the nature of the relationship between the two stories. Because I might have a way of understanding how the center of these stories are kind of relating to each other, okay? It doesn't matter, okay? Um, call them X and Y, it doesn't make a difference. All right? Okay, so now let's try it. Turns out that one of these stories is a little bit of a chiasm. Getting into the whole chiasm is actually a very elegant and 
very complex chiasm, but time does not allow us to get into it in detail. So I'm just going to give you some basic elements of the chiasm. Turns out that the Akeda is structured as a chiasm. Now, why is this interesting? It's interesting because we're going to do a little before and after sketch, right? Okay, before the chiasm. Before the chiasm, if I were to ask you what the meaning of the Akeda story is, what was the nature of the test uh, that Abraham had in the Akeda? What would you tell me? What was being tested? His faith, you might say. It's a great test of faith. It is essentially a theological test where whatever a test of faith means, that's what it is, right? Will Abraham have enough faith in God or maybe to use the words of the text, would he be a Yerei Elohim? Is he going to be a fearer of God? Whatever exactly this means. But that's the nature of the test, right? It is an issue of whether Abraham fears God or not. However, once you start looking at it with the eyes of a chiasm, there's a, a whole other element of the Akedah that begins to reveal itself, which I think is very striking. Let's take a look. Remember when we talked about wood on top of child, child on top of wood? That's the kind of thing that gives you a sense that you might be dealing with a chiasm. When at the beginning, at the beginning of the story, when Isaac's going up the mountain, he's got this wood that's bound together in a little, you know, bound together, which is on top of his back. And then, before you know it, at the end of the story, you have child bound on top of wood, wood bound on top of child, child bound on top of wood. Now, what I want you to do, if you can, is look carefully in your text and tell me if this is a chiasm starting from child on top of, wood on top of child at one end of the story and child on top of wood on the other end of the story, if I move in an element, which is to say an, an ele the next element after child on top of wood and the element before, sorry, the next element after wood on top of child and the element before child on top of wood, is there any elements there that seem to remind you one of another? There you go. And they both walk together. Turns out that the phrase, and they both walk together, occurs twice in the Akedah. The first time it occurs, it's right after you hear that Isaac is going up to the mountain with the wood on his back. The second time it occurs, it's right before you hear that Isaac is bound on top of the wood. You're beginning to see the beginnings of a chiasm. Right? It looks like this. Right? Wood on top of child, child on top of wood. Well, and they both walk together. And they both walk together is appearing right after that first time. I don't know is if Wood on top of child's element A, so element B in the chiasm is, and they both walk together. We're getting closer towards the center, okay? Now, what happens in between the and they both walk together? Let's get closer. We're going to try to define the center of the Akeda. What is in the center? What's in the middle between the two and they both walk together? Anybody? Generally speaking, what's in the middle? A conversation is in the middle. A conversation between Abraham and Isaac occurs in the middle. 
That is the center of the Akedah, this conversation. But we can be a little bit more precise about that because we can search for the center of the conversation. But before we do, let's just note that the conversation is the center of the Akedah. Now, lest you think that that's trivial, this is the only conversation that is ever recorded in the entire Torah between Abraham and Isaac. It's the only thing we know that they ever talked about is this conversation going up the mountain. Must be a pretty important conversation. And it's at the center of the Akedah. Well, what's this conversation about? Let's talk about this conversation. What's ha so what is this conversation about? Basically, this is a what's going on conversation, right? Okay, so let's look at... And by the way, that explains a lot about the Vayalchus Shnei Yachtov. That's Rashi. Rashi is bothered by the double language, Vayalchus Shnei Yachtov. Why is that to say it twice? What's Rashi's answer? Rashi's answer is the same way they were walking together before this conversation... They were walking together after this conversation. Which is a pretty amazing thing, given what happens in the conversation. If the conversation is, hey dad, what's going on? Right? And after this conversation, Isaac knows. And before the conversation, he doesn't. And they still were walking together. Right? That's pretty amazing. That's basically Rashi's point. But let's look further in this conversation. Let's talk about this conversation for a moment. There is a middle to this conversation, and we'll try to find it. But before we find it, let's just read the conversation. Chapter 22. They're walking together. Now, let's read the conversation carefully and identify the problems in the conversation. Here we go. What are the problems of this conversation? Vayomer Yitzchak al-Avram Aviv. Vayomer Avi. Vayomer hineni b'ni. Any problems here? Let's translate it. Vayomer Yitzchak el By the way, it's like almost impossible to translate it, so I'm not even going to translate it. But I'm just going to rely on your Hebrew skills for a second, and I'll translate it for in a minute if you don't know the Hebrew. Listen carefully. What's wrong with this in Hebrew? Vayomer Yitzchak el Avram aviv vayomer avi. You have two vayomers. And it's not grammatical. It, it, it is grammatically wrong. What should it be grammatically? It should be Vayomer Yitzchak el Avram Aviv colon quote Avi. That's what it should be. It should not be Vayomer Yitzchak el Avram Aviv Vayomer Avi. You can't say that. That's like saying, and Bob said to Sam, and he said, Bob, right, or Sam. You can't say that. What did he say the first time? You already said he said. You can't, in other words, it's not like sometimes you have Vayidabra Hashem el Moshe. Vayomer, but that's different. I can say, and God spoke to Abraham saying, that you can say because in English spoke can be an intransitive verb, right? And you, you can say, I spoke to you without explaining what I said. That's a complete sentence. I spoke to Suri. That's a sentence, right? I can't say, I said to Suri, period. That doesn't work. Said is, tra is transitive. I've got to know what happened. I've got to know what was said. So you can't say, and, Ab and, Isaac, and Ab Isaac said to Abraham, and he said, you could say, and Isaac spoke to Abraham, and he said, that you could say, but that's not what it says. It says, and Isaac said to Abraham, and he said, what's the extra said? So my Rosh Hashiva Rabbi Weinberg was bothered by this, that's how, and his Rav Yaakov Weinberg and Ari Yisrael, and this was his answer. And I think, by the way, it's an answer which you can use throughout Tanakh, because this kind of thing happens a lot. You will find throughout Tanakh that there are, are many non-grammatical saids, 
Okay? Many times that people say things without knowing what was said, we have the same grammatical problem. A couple of examples come to mind. I'm not going to get involved in this really. Cain. Okay? Cain. Right? So there's a... What did he say? We don't know. Now, the Torah, that wasn't a mistake. That's the Torah using every possible way of hitting you over the head with meaning, including, including non-grammatical sentences. The non-grammatical sentence is part of the meaning. Meaning, Cain was talking, and you don't know what he said, and, but it's, it's a verb that requires you to know what he said, but we don't know what was said. And instead, while they were in the field, he got up and killed him. What's the sense? Sense was, there should have been a conversation... There was the beginning of a conversation, but before he even got words out, something happened, and instead, he decided to hit him. Right? Which is a lot of the times the way things work. There's a sense that maybe this could have worked out differently if there was a conversation. But there was an interrupted conversation. As the convers- You're supposed to know what happened, but you didn't. And there's this vacuum. And instead, what fills the vacuum? Violence. Here, too. Vayomer Yitzchak el Rabbi Weinberg says interrupted conversation. That's the sense. But it sense that there were two things happening. First, Isaac said to Abraham, what did he say? You don't know. There's no conversation. But, just as he was about to speak, Vayomer Avi. Instead, he said, my father. That changes the whole meaning of what's going on. What that means is, so here they were going up the mountain. They were talking about the weather, small talk, everything like that. But then there was this interrupted conversation. Before, uh, Isaac was about to say something, but before he even got words out of his mouth, all of a sudden, he said something else. What did he say? One word. Avi, my father. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Why is that the one word you don't want to hear right now? <laughs> Because what is the prime responsibility of father? Protect your child. So if you're Abraham going up the mountain, how do you do this emotionally? How do you do this psychologically? You're being asked to go up to the mountain and shecht your child. How do you do this? So the only way you can imagine possibly doing this is by like, maybe you convince yourself that this is like God's will or something and you have to turn your back on your fatherly obligations to your son. But if that's what you're doing, the last words that you want to hear are daddy, my father, right? Okay, this, this is like what you do not want to hear. Okay. If you hear those words, what do you want to do? You want to run. You want to be anywhere but here, right? Either run physically, like, okay, forget it. Let's go down the mountain, right? Or run emotionally. What would running away emotionally be? Change the subject. Change the subject, right? Running away emotionally is, let's get back to the weather, Isaac. I hear they're calling for a hurricane, right? You know, something like that. So either you run away physically or you run away emotionally. Look at Abraham's response. Hineni bani. Look at that. Here I am, my son. My son. An acknowledgement. I am your father. You are my son. And I'm right here. The total opposite of running away. He's right there. And then he gets the question. 
that he knows he's going to get. Vayomer. And then Isaac, being reassured that his father is right there for him, opens his mouth and asks that great timeless question. Right? I see the fire. I see the wood. But where's the lamb? Okay? Now notice, and I, notice that when he says, where's the lamb? There are two Hebrew words for where. In Hebrew, how can you say where? Apho. The more common word for where is apho. Notice he does not use that word. Instead, he uses the less common Hebrew word for where, which is aye. Aye hasela ola. What's the difference between apho and aye? So I talk about this in my book. But the, the essential difference, I think, is if you, the way to do this is go through a concordance, go through a Tanakh, list, find all the ayes, find all the aphos, look for the common denominators. If you tried this, you'd find something like the following, right? Apho, Apho likatatayom, Ruth says to, uh, Naomi says to Ruth. So, where, where'd, you, where'd you pick and whose field did you pick? Aye hakadesha hibeinayim, Yehuda's. Uh, Yehuda says to his messenger, where was the harlot that the messenger says, asking around, where was the harlot that used to be by the side of the road? God, to Adam, Ayeka, where are you? Not Ephoata, Ayeka, where are you? Okay? So one second. What's the the difference between Epho and Aye? I think the difference is, I don't have much time, so I'm just going to talk instead of let you guys figure this out. I think the difference is, that AFO is a genuine request for a location. When I ask AFO, I really want to know where something is, right? So, for example, when I say AFO likatatayom, Nami really wanted to know in whose field she was picking. That was important information to know. That's not aye. When God asked Adam where he was, he was not wondering, are you behind this tree or are you behind that tree? It's God asking. God knows exactly where Abraham is. It's not a request for location. Location is irrelevant. I can know your location, but I still ask Aye. Why? Because Aye doesn't mean, where are you? It means, where did you go? How come you're not here? Aye is always a request where I, know, I, I may know where you are. Aye Elohim. Where are there gods now? It's not, is your God over there, is your God over here? The point is, right, the, 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 right your God is supposed to be here. Your God, your, the idolaters, why, how, come you're, how come you're not here? You're supposed to be here. What, what do you mean you're not here? Right? Aye hakadesha hibainayim. The question, aye hakadesha hibainayim, when, Yehuda, when, when Yehuda's messenger is asking around, is not, tell me where she is. He's already begun to suspect that there is no kadesha hibainayim. The real question is, where did she go? How come there's no Kadesha here? There used to be a Kadesha. There used to be this harlot over here. She's not here. He's smelling the truth, which is there's no Kadesha, right? He's that close to uncovering the truth about Tamar, only to have Yehuda say, let's stop looking, right? But that's part of the story. So if Isaac asks not... The question was not where the lamb is. Did we leave him by the shed? Or was he out over by the ranch? That's not the question. The question is not, tell me where the ram is. How come there's no ram? There ain't no ram. Where'd the ram go? Right? 
Dad, I see the fire. I see, I, I, I see that, you know, all this stuff. I, I see the wood. Ain't no lamb. What's the deal with the lamb? Right? The difference between those questions, Apho and Ie, is that if it was Apho, maybe it's an innocent question. Did we leave the lamb behind? Where, where was that lamb? If it's Ie, it's not an innocent question. If it's Ie, it's how come there's no lamb? Then Isaac knows. Okay? So Abraham gets saddled with this question. What's his response? His response is, <clears throat> Hashem Yireh, let's just get the words correct. That's right. Bayom Ravram, Elohim God will show for himself a lamb for the offering, my son. And the, God will show for himself, Hashem Yireh a lamb for the offering, my son. And the ambiguity in that sentence hinges upon where you place the comma. Is there a comma before my son or not? Okay, the can't, let's, let's check out the cantillations. But the, the, but the text is inherently ambiguous in the language. Let's, let's actually check out the cantillations. What is the cantillations? Elohim yire lo ola, comma, Bani, right, stands alone. So God will show for himself a lamb for the offering, comma, my son. But if you look at Rashi, Rashi, Rashi points to the inherent ambiguity. And basically Rashi is saying that, it's, I don't, that Abraham is saying, I don't know. Abraham is saying, I don't know the answer to your question. There's two alternatives. And the, the ambiguity preserves both alternatives. One, one possibility is God will find for himself a lamb, comma, my son. Right? In which case everything will be fine. But there's another possibility, which Rashi points out. The imlo, and if not, right, bini, you, my son, are the lamb, without the comma, which is, God will show for himself a lamb for the offering, my son. Right? If you read that as a run-on sentence without the comma, it allows for the possibility, the possibility, that maybe my son is the lamb. Now, why is Abraham playing games here? Just say what you mean. The answer is, he doesn't know. Right? I'll tell you why he doesn't know. Tell me why you know. If you're Abraham, again, you have to read the story without knowing the ending. You're spoiled. You know the ending. Abraham does not know the ending. If the story ended here, right, you, you would have to, and you had to project the ending, you wouldn't know the ending. You can, you can philosophize all you want about the God who doesn't want you know, infanticide and this and that. But bottom line is, you do not know the ending to this story unless the Torah tells you the ending. And it doesn't make any sense. Neither way makes any sense. Nothing makes any sense about this story. But either, either Isaac is going to come down off that mountain or he's not going to come down. It doesn't make any sense to Abraham. Here God is promising me I'm going to have this child, keep Yitzchak Yikar Lechazera, and then God says kill him. Does that make any sense? But on the other hand, God is saying kill him. I don't know what's happening, right? But what does Abraham know? What does Abraham know? What Abraham knows is, I think, what gives Abraham the strength to go forward? What really is he saying? If you look at Abraham's psychological stance, his emotional stance vis-a-vis -vis his son, what is he really saying? What he's saying is the truth. What he's saying is, I don't know what's going to happen at the top of that mountain, my son. But I do know that I am your father, and I do know that I am here, 
And you can say to Abraham, are you crazy? Look at you. You're on the way to the top of the mountain to kill your son. The most anti-fatherly thing you can do. Hineni, by the way. It's not the first time Abraham said Hineni. He said Hineni at the beginning of the story too. When he says Hineni to God. And he says it at the end of the story. When he says it to the angel. When the angel stays his hand. And he says it right in the middle of the story. When he says it to Isaac. And those three Hinanis, beginning, middle, and end, are, by the way, part of the chiasm. And they tell you a lot about the meaning of the story. Because what is this story about? If you just say this story is about the Hinani to God in the beginning, then all it's about is the willingness of one man to give all to God. Which, by the way, Muslims do all the time, right? If you think about it at some level, anybody willing to, to sacrifice his life or his child's life for God. Big thing, right? But that's only one Hineni. There's another Hineni at the end. The Hineni to the angel. It's a really strange Rashi. You know what Rashi says? Rashi says that when the angel said, don't touch him, it's based upon the verse, Abraham came back and said, what do you mean don't touch him? Lachinam basilakan? I came here for nothing. Let me just give him a little nick. Let me just take a little bit of blood. Just so that I didn't come here for nothing. What are the sages saying? Are they crazy? He should be jumping for joy. He should be so thrilled. What's he saying? I came here for nothing. Let me just give him a little nick. The only way you can ask that question is if you don't understand the psychological reality of the Akedah. If God comes to you and says, kill your son, and you say yes, and you spend three days going up the mountain, what do you have to do to say yes? Do you know how hard it is to say yes? Do you know what you have to do to say yes? You have to steal yourself emotionally. You have to sort of alienate yourself for your son. You have to, understand, you have to say, what I stand for is God and nothing more than God. And you turn into an emotional steamroller who's going to do nothing, nothing, nothing but God's will, God's will, God's will, and you're headed at 90 miles an hour off this cliff, never turning back, just like Sarah Palin says. You never blink. You always know, and you steal yourself, and you just go forward, and you never question, and you never wonder, and you just go, go, go. That's what it's about. But if that's what's about, what happens when the angel says, don't do it at the last minute? If you're a steamroller... Right? What do you do? Right? You have all this emotional energy pushing you to do this. And the angel says, don't. Part of the godless of Abraham is that he can say Hineni to the angel too. The same Hineni, the same Abraham that can say, I'm ready to do it, can also say, I'm ready to stop. But within that Hineni is, but for nothing, just a little nick, just something. You can't, you just, can't just turn off this energy. I have to give some. But no, the angel says, no, don't do anything. So he does nothing. But in between these two extremes, these two Hinanis, is another Hinani, which is the middle of the chiasm, which is the center of Avram's greatness. It's not just about his willingness to say Hinani to God. And it's not just about his willingness to turn, turn that off at the end. It's also his willingness to say Hinani to his child. When his child says, Avi, my father, the one words you don't want to hear. And instead of running away, for him to say, Hineni Bani, here I am, my son, I am here for you. Now, Abraham has a great and terrible contradiction. Because you can say to Abraham, are you crazy? 
How can you say, Hineni, to your son, look at where you're going. You're going up the mountain to kill him. How can you say, Hineni, to your son? What would Abraham's answer be? Listen to Abraham's answer. Abraham's answer is when Isaac says to him, Dad, what's the story with the lamb? What does Abraham say? Abraham says, I don't know how this is going to end. I know, all I know is what? I know what I have to do. When God comes to me and says this is what he wants to me, I have to say hineni. And even though it's contradictory, when God comes to me and says, and when, when I'm going up the mountain to you, I don't just have obligations to God. I have obligations to you because I'm your father. So when you say, my father, I have to say, here I am for you. That's my obligation right now. I, at the top of the mountain, those two obligations go in two different ways. How can you keep on saying, Hineni to God, and Hineni to, to what he called, how are you going to do that? The two tightropes are going the opposite directions. You can't keep on walking these two tightropes. What's Abraham's response? Elohim yira lo haselo It's up to God. I don't know what's going to happen at the top of the mountain, but that's not my business. That's his faith. His faith is, that's up to God. God is a big boy. And he's going to have to figure it out. And I don't know whether at the top of that mountain I'm going to have to do something unthinkable or whether at the top of the mountain there's some way out that I can't figure out. But I do know one thing. That's up to God. That's God's choice. That's his business. What's my business? My business is to say hineni to everyone that I need to, that everyone I have a relationship with, even though it doesn't make sense and even though this is putting me on trajectories that I can't, that in the end are going to conflict. But this is what I will do as long as possible. If, hold on for one second. I, I can't take questions just now because there's really a lot to say. So I'm going to take questions right now at the end, okay? So if you look at the chiasm together and you ask what's in the center, the center is the conversation. If you look at the center of this conversation, you're going to find that there are five elements of the conversation. There are five vayomers. There are five things that are said in this conversation. If there are five things that are said, five is an odd number. There's a center to those five. The center is going to be the third. What are the five elements? These are they. The first, Isaac says to Avram, his father. The second is, and he says, my father. The third is Hineni Bani. That's the middle. The middle phrase plays off the ends. The two ends of the Akedah, the two bookends, are the Hinanis. Look at the greens, right? There's Hinanis at the ends. Hineni to God at the top, Hineni to the angel on the bottom. Right in the middle, the third and middle saying is Hineni, to Isaac. Now, what do inquiring minds want to know? Inquiring minds want to know, how does this play off of the expulsion of Ishmael? If everything in the expulsion of Ishmael is playing off of the Akeda, what about the center? What about this conversation? Is there anything in the expulsion of Ishmael that reminds you of the conversation between Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain? Is there any conversation between Hagar and Ishmael? No. So you might say there's no counterpoint. 
But if you look carefully, you will find there is. What's the counterpoint to the conversation between Abraham and Isaac in the expulsion of Ishmael? Here's the hint. Notice that the conversation between Abraham and Isaac is offset by bookends as part of the chiasm, which are Vayelchushneim Yachtav. There's a Vayelchushneim Yachtav before the conversation. There's a Vayelchushneim Yachtav, and they both walk together after the conversation. Is there anything in the expulsion of Ishmael story that reminds you of Vayelchushneim Yachtav, Vayelchushneim Yachtav? Is there any phrase that sounds like Vayelchushneim Yachtav, which repeats itself twice, that brackets some sort of something happening in the middle between them? Very close. That's only once. No. What was it? Correct. But the phrase is that appears twice in the Hagar and Ishmael story is Vatelech Vatashav Lamineged. And she went, she walked, and she sat far away or opposite him. Okay? She went, she walked, and she sat opposite him. Vatelech Vatashav Lamineged. Here's the phrase. Let's go back to chapter 21. Sixteen. And she stood far away opposite him. How far away? About a bow shot away. Because she said, let me not see the death of the child. And she stood far away opposite him. And she raised her voice and she cried. Interesting. Listen to this. Two Vatashev Lamineged. Two Vatashev Mineged. And she sat opposite him far away. Very interesting. In the Akedah, you have two Vayelchush Neyam and they both walk together. Here we have two, and she sat far away from him. Hmm. Walking, sitting. Walking together, sitting far away opposite. Mirror images. What happens in between the two Vatashev Minegids? Was there a conversation? No. There was a conspicuous lack of a conversation. There is a conversation, but there's only one person talking. It's Hagar, and she's talking to herself. So whereas in the Akedah, between the two Vayachushneim Yachtavs, there's a conversation between Abraham and Isaac, with Hagar, in between the two, and she sat far away, there's only one person talking. And, and what is she saying? Let me not see the death of the child. What did Abraham say? Hashem God will show for himself a lamb. What does she say? I'm not going to see the death of the child. Abraham also could have said, I'm not going to see the death of the child. What if Abraham had said to himself, I can't bear to see the death of the child? What would have happened in that conversation? He would have ran away emotionally, physically, something. Maybe he would have killed him, but he would have ran away, right? When she says, I will not see the death of the child, those are the words that allows herself to distance herself. I cannot bear to see what's going to happen. I must be far away. There's only one problem with this. It works for her, but it doesn't work for the child. If you think about what a 
I'll get to you in a second, but if you think about what the, what the parent's responsibility is, what is a parent's responsibility in a near-death experience or a death experience? Let's say the child's going to die. Let's say you can't bear to watch the death of the child. Who cares? What is the responsibility? No, who cares if you can't see the death of the child? What's your responsibility as a parent? Your responsibility is to be there. Your principal responsibility is to help. But let's say you can't help because there's nothing you can do. If you can't help, you stay there, right? You hold the child's hand. We do not let people die alone, right? The whole process of Leviah. What does Leviah even mean? In death, you accompany. You do not stand behind. You do not leave, right? She leaves because she cannot bear the death of the child. But what happens to to Ishmael. Ishmael is abandoned at that moment. He has no mother. And then, she raises her voice and she weeps. What does it mean when you raise your voice and weeps? If you go throughout Tanakh and you, and you chart all the all the you'll find they share a common denominator. They're always about utter, complete despair. It's when the sands are slipping through your fingers and you know that you will never get them back. It's when you've completely given up hope. It's when Esav cries and he says, Habrocha achas, is there only one bracha, my father? You don't have a bracha for me? When he realizes he's not getting the bracha, Vayisa kolo vayek, he raises his voice and he cries. It's when, it's when Yaakov sees Rachel for the very first time and kisses her, but even as he kisses her, he lifts up his voice and he cries. And what do Chazal say? Because he saw that he wouldn't be buried with her. He saw an ultimate separation, that he would never really have her. This was the woman of his dreams, and he would always want her and always pine for her, but he would never really get her. And even in death, they would not be together. But Yisau Kolovayevk is always despair. With Hagar, it is Despair. Despair. That's true, later, right? But, no, to Avram, she doesn't know that, okay? So she is despairing. What is she doing? She's mourning. She's mourning his death. There's only one problem. He's alive. What happens when you're, a, now think about it from Yishmael's perspective. If you're Yishmael and you're dying, but you're alive, and as you're dying, you call out for your mother, but she's not there. She's over there, 300 yards away. And you see her crying, mourning you. What does that tell you if someone's mourning you when you're still alive? I'm alive. Okay, that's true. That's true. Okay. Okay. I hear what you're saying. First of all, he doesn't have the knife over the neck yet. But even if he does, that's true. So there will come a time when Abraham has to choose. But what is a father's responsibility? A father's responsibility is that before I... I don't know what's going to happen when I have to make that nightmarish choice. But until I'm going to make this nightmarish choice, I'm walking the tightrope. Okay, could be. 
I'm, what I'm really doing here is interpreting Rashi. Rashi's interpretation on the double Vayachushneim Yachtav is the same way they were together before they were there afterwards. If you think about that, what, uh, maybe so, and, and it's very scary. If you think about it, what is the greatest rift which you could possibly imagine opening up between a father and child? How about, I had a dream last night and God told me to kill you? Right? I mean, that you wouldn't expect the relationship to be so wonderful after that. That's essentially what Abraham... So, but instead of running away from that reality, Abraham is sharing in as gentle a way as possible that reality and that horror. And it, that's true. There's horror there. But even as there's horror there, Abraham is not giving up. How do you kill people? How do we kill people? How do we kill anybody? Forget your child. How do you kill anybody? The way you depersonalize, the only way a human being can ever kill any other human being is to alienate, to depersonalize. That's what happens, right? What, the only way you would think that Abraham could steal himself to do this is to depersonalize Yitzchak. The greatness of Abraham is that he's not willing to do that. He's willing to personalize Yitzchak to the greatest extent possible, even as he's going to do the unimaginable. That, I think, is the greatness of Abraham. It's his willingness to walk two tightropes, even as the two are going in opposite directions. I'm not explaining... Uh, uh, I'm, let me just clarify. I agree with you that the Akedah remains a difficult story. My point is not to explain the Akedah, and not to explain the difficulties in the Akedah. That's another schmooze. My point right now is to explain the connections and the contrast between the story of the Akedah and the story of Hagar. What I believe is that both stories are about a parent and child in moments of acute distress. One story is about being there for your child, even in the most unimaginable of circumstances. The other story seems to be a story about not being there. It seems to be a failed Akedah story. If you, look at, uh, if you look at Hagar, Hagar is described as being how far away from Yishmael? Kimetachave Keshet. About a bowshot away. What a strange choice of words. About a bowshot away. That's pretty far. How far can you shoot a bow? It's pretty far. Maybe about 200 yards. Let's say if you're a good archer, about 200 yards away. But why does it just say about 200 yards away? Why say about a bow shot away? Think about what Ishmael becomes later in the story. He becomes a ravakashet, a slinger of bows. He becomes an archer. Why do you think he became an archer? If you think about it, if he becomes an archer... And his first experience with bows, so to speak, is when his mother went and sat herself about a bow shot away. What's he trying to do by becoming an archer? One of two things. He's either trying to bridge the gulf between himself and his mother through violence by shooting, bow, by shooting arrows, or alternatively, if his mother's over there and I'm shooting arrows at her, I'm trying to kill her. And even though both may be contradictory, so as Emerson says, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. If you think about children that have been abandoned and the kinds of emotions they have towards their parents, it's exactly that kind of conflict that they feel. I actually, I had a, a, a student who once worked in a, in, a, you know, in a home that was a refuge for foster, you know, foster kids. And there was one kid, 13-year-old girl, who would cry at night, and she would say, I want my mother, I want my mother. And then she would say, I hate my mommy, I hate my mommy, but all I really want is my mommy. Right? That's the conflict. 
You can never give up. She's your mommy. You can never give up the creator-child bond. It's always there. But what if your mother abandons you? What if your mother's crying for you when you're not really dead and isn't there for you? What do you do? What does that leave? What scars does that leave? And I think that explains what the angel says. What does the angel say? Angel says, Hold his hand. Right? You can't abandon this child. You have to hold his hand. You have to be there for him. You have to. You can't afford because he's going to be a great nation. You can't afford to have this nation, to have this kid be the progenitor of a great nation and not hold his hand. Because if his primal experience as he comes to nationhood is of abandonment and he becomes an archer intending to bridge the gap between himself and his mother, what stamp does that leave upon his nation? That's not a good thing. Hold his hand. You can't afford to do this. You can't afford to do that to Ishmael. So, at some level, at some level, I think the story of the Akedah and the story of the, of the of binding of Ishmael are opposites. It's a story of a failed Akedah. Okay? But I think there is yet more, right, to the meaning of the connection between the stories. And in my little remaining time, I want to explore that with you. Let's just take a quick look at my little remaining time. Sorry, we're until 8? Okay. All right, so I have a little bit of remaining time. I know that you guys are flooded with questions, but I have a lot to say too. So you're just going to stay there and listen, right? I'll, I'll, get to my que- I'll get to your questions shortly enough. All right, but here's what, here's what I want to say. Coming back to some of the issues, I began by asking you to ponder two chazal, which seem to connect the story of the Akedah and the story of Girish Ishmael. No. Ain't no elalashen bakasha. Why did God say please? Because the first nine... Right? Oh, they shouldn't say they were nothing. What do you mean they shouldn't say they were nothing? They were something. How could you say the first nine were nothing? And, right, the su'uda, right, that, that, that meal, right? That the, 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 there was the, the, the Satan looks at that meal and says there's something he doesn't like. Okay? I want to explore that with you. And I'm going to, th- this is the part where if you're recording this, Right? You can turn off your tape recorders because if you say that I told you what I'm about to tell you, I will deny it. I'm telling you now. If you walk around saying, Rabbi Foreman says, I never said that. It's crazy. These Drisha people, I have no idea what they're saying. So I, I will deny this. Okay? But I want to, and I'm not saying that what I'm about to say is absolutely true. It's just a theory. Okay? But I think there is it's a very provocative theory and you can decide for yourself what you think about it. But let me let me share some possibilities with you. I asked you, when I asked you to look over the story of the expulsion of Ishmael, to do two things. The second thing I asked you to do was to find the connections between that story and the story of the binding of Isaac. But the first thing I asked you to do was to ask yourself what the problems with the story are. I want to come back to that first thing I asked you to do now. What are the problems with that story? To save time, I'm going to read through the story, and when you come up with a problem, I want you to raise your hand excitedly and say, ah, that's a problem, that's a problem, stop right there. Okay, so let's read through this. What are the problems in the story of the expulsion of Ishmael? We're going to start from the beginning, as Julie Wood Andrews would say, a very good place to start. All right, chapter 21. Vashem pakadat Sarah. Kasher Amar. That's a repetition problem. God remembered Sarah and he did what he said he was going to do. Okay, we have that idea re- repeated. 
She conceives, she gives birth to a child in Abraham's old age, just when God had said that it would happen earlier. Okay, repetition, correct. This verse is a lot longer than it needs to be. You just told me that Abraham had a child by Sarah. Now you want to tell me he got named Yitzchak. So just say, he got named Yitzchak. You don't have to say, Vayikra Avram et Shem, all you have to say is, Vayikra Avram et Shem Beno, Yitzchak. Instead, Vayikra Avram et Shem Beno, now we get a long explanation of which, uh, which son. Which son? Hanolad lo, but that's not enough. Asher yodolo sara, comma, Yitzchak. Uh, that's a lot of repetition. If you haven't figured that out on your own, you haven't been paying attention. What is the Torah doing by emphasizing that? The Torah is going out of its way to emphasize what? That the child he is naming is? Is not Ishmael. Is not Ishmael. There, there's a cognizance. There is another child in the background here. There's a black hole. He who must not be named. Right? It is, a, it is Yishmael, who we're not talking about. But there's another child here. The child we're talking about now is a child that was born to him through Sarah. The child that was born to him, but the child that was born to him through Sarah, as opposed to, we all know, through you-know-who. Right? Through Hagar. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay. Could be. Yes, it is similar to Kachet Pinchat Yichid which is another connection between the stories. Okay. Anyway, let's keep on going. So Avram is very old. He's a hundred years old when all this happens. And Sarah now talks. Oh, sorry, I skipped. He gives him Mila, and he's very old. Now, Pasuk Vav. Sarah. Sarah says, God has made a joke for me. Anybody who hears this, okay, now how do you translate this? Just one second. I just want to know, I'm a simple Jew, I just want to know how to translate the words, okay? Let's just take this slow. Sarah says, God has made a whole joke, a whole rejoicing, a whole laughter here, right? And if you want to know how to translate it contextually, keep on reading the next verse. I'm sorry. Who would have possibly foretold to Avram that there would come a time when Sarah would be nursing his children? Look, I have given birth to a child in his old age. So now, what did it mean? God has made a laughter at me. Anyone who hears me, Yitzachakli, translate. Contextually, it means, will rejoice for me, or will rejoice along with me, or will laugh in astonishment along with me. The only problem is, that's what it means contextually, but it's not what it means literally. Because then it should have said, Yitzachakimi, or something like that. Instead, it says, Yitzachakli. What does li mean? Li literally means to me, but the problem is that doesn't mean anything. Anyone who hears this will laugh to me. What does that mean? I think there's an inherent ambiguity in the verse. The Torah is not clear about what it means. So the Torah is allowing for the contextual interpretation, which is anybody who hears is going to laugh along with me, even though that's not the closest sense of the literal translation. Yitzhak Li is kind of in the middle, but leans more towards what? 
if you had to pick one, laugh, make fun of me. Well, laugh at, when you laugh at someone, you're mocking them. Now, we recoil at that because Sarah is not saying anyone who hears will mock me. Sarah is saying anyone who hears will rejoice with me, and that's the context, because she says, who would have foretold that I would be able to give birth to children? However, keep in mind the literal translation of her words as you keep on reading the verses. Let's read the next verse. The child grows up and becomes weaned. And Avram makes a great mishteh, a very big party, on the day that Yitzchak is weaned. Now, all of a sudden, What's the problem with this verse? The problem is it's too long. Again, why the grand introduction? What does Sarah see? Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. So just say, Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. Notice that Ishmael is not identified by name. Instead, what is he called? Ben Hagar HaMitzris. And if we're that weren't enough, Ben Hagar HaMitzris, Asher Yalda LaAvram. Why the grand introduction? The child of Hagar the Mitzris that gave birth to Avram? What's the Torah contrasting this with? Earlier, remember Sarah, how Sarah gave birth to a child to Abraham when he was old? Now who's laughing? The other child given birth to Abraham, because it wasn't just Sarah that gave birth to a child for Abraham. Now the Ben Hagar Amitzris Asher Avram, right? It explains Ishmael's laughter. Why is he laughing? Look at the sentence before. The sentence before tells you why this other child of Abraham, who was also born to Abraham, is laughing. Why is he laughing? What happened in the sentence before? There was a party. Ishmael is 13 years old, and there was a great feast for the weaning of Yitzchak from somebody else. Why is Ishmael taunting? What's he really saying? Where was my party? I don't remember a party. No one ever told me about a party when I got weaned, right? What's the deal with this party? And now Sarah's prophecy, so to speak, comes true, but not the way she might have supposed. Now Yitzhakli really means Yitzhakli. It's not contextual anymore. Sarah might have been hoping that people who heard about this would laugh with rejoicing of her. But what actually happens is what she says. Someone starts laughing at her, and it's her other son, Yishmael. Yishmael looks at this situation and taunts and laughs at her, exactly like she said. This is great stuff. Oh, sorry. <laughs> All right, let's keep on reading. What? The meaning of Metzachek has... Mitzachek has many different meanings. It's one of those words. So the literal, it, it means laughter. But even in English, there's different kinds of laughter. There's joyous laughter, there's nice laughter, and there's taunting, mocking laughter. So in Hebrew, there's all of those possibilities also. Right? And Yitzchak, of course, is named for this. Okay, so let's keep on reading. All right, one second, time out, guys. We really only have a few minutes left. So let me just put this together, and then you guys can jump on me. Okay? Hold on for a second. Enter Sarah. <coughs> Batomar Lavram. Sarah says, It's enough. It's over. Garesha Amazot. Expel this maidservant. Ve'et Bena. 
and her son, because this child will not be your heir along with Isaac. Expel her. Basically, Sarah has seen a pattern. Because if you go back, there's another Hagar story lurking six chapters earlier. What happened in that story? A very similar kind of thing. Hagar, when she realized she was pregnant, her whole relationship with Sarah changed. She started sort of gently mocking Sarah, not treating her with authority anymore. And that was a big crisis, and she ran away at that time, and she eventually came back. And now the same thing is happening in the next generation. When the same rivalry transfers to the next generation, uh, you know, things are not good. At this point, Sarah says, we got to cut things, right? It's over. Garesha tamazot. Abraham's response. Vayera hadavar ma'od Avram. Abraham didn't like it, not one bit. Abraham does not like this idea. Strangely, the last words, alodot beno. That's true. Seemingly in Trutoshal Mikra, he doesn't like it, what's happening to Ishmael. Notice, though, what Sarah said was something that was going to happen to two people. And Abraham's not relating to Hagar right now. He's relating to Ishmael. He doesn't like what's happening to Ishmael. Now let's keep on reading. Now let's play what happens next, also from Sesame Street. Right? You know that part where the guy comes with the chocolate cream pies and you've got to stop and ask what's going to happen next? Let's ask what happens next. Pretend you don't know what's going to happen next in the story. You do not know what's going to happen next. And I told you, Abraham goes to consult with God. What do you think God might say? God might say, I see this family dispute over here. Let's find a way to work things out. Let's, let's, let's patch things up. I see how upset you are, Abraham. You know, I, I, we got to, let's not, you know, we have to honor what Sarah is saying, but let's not go over the bridge so fast over here. Let's kind of make peace and you figure out a way to just kind of make the pieces work over here. That's what you might have expected God to say, but that's not what God says. God actually, what's the word for this? God rejects Abraham's position out of hand which is shocking, and sides unilaterally with Sarah, right? And what does God say? God says, What are you so upset? You're upset? You think this is all bad? You're wrong. You're totally out of line. Do not feel bad about this child, Valamatecha. Notice, by the way, that God injects Hagar into the conversation, even though Abraham never felt bad about her, according to the text. He's just feeling bad about his son. He says, don't feel so bad about the child and the mother. Whatever Sarah tells you, because in Isaac you are going to have progeny. Now, lest you think that God is so excited about this, He's not necessarily so excited about this. If you go back and trace right? Everything that's, one second, everything that Sarah tells you, listen to her voice. When was the first time that Abraham listened to Sarah's voice? When he married Hagar. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. What's God saying now? You listened to her the first time. If you listened to her the first time to marry her, that was not my idea. That was her idea. You listened to her without asking me. Everything Sarah tells you, listen to her. If you're going to listen to her then, you've got to listen to her now. 
Don't bring me into this, right? But, and it's true. In Isaac, you are going to have your progeny. Okay. Now, I have a little problem over here. Here's my problem. This is a little bit of a red herring, but I'm going to mislead you gently for just one second over here. Here's my problem. My problem is, you know, what was Abraham worried about? Abraham was like, you know, he was a humanitarian. He didn't want to send these people out into the, the desert to starve. So it's like, you know, what he's worried about is the welfare of, of Hagar, right? So what's God saying? Don't worry, keep Yitzhak God should have said, don't worry, because I'll provide for them. Everything will be okay. The point is not who your heir is going to be. The point is, I'll take care of them, right? God's saying the wrong thing. Let's hold that question in abeyance for a moment. Okay, let's keep on reading. Again, it doesn't seem to be the point. And I will also make the child a great nation, because after all, he is your progeny. Who cares? That's not the point. It's not why Abraham didn't like this. Abraham didn't like this because he, he thought it was like you know, anti-humanitarian. It didn't go with his chesed kind of style to be so cruel and to cast these people out. Okay, so now let's see what happens. Now, this is the point of the story that makes it so painful. This is the point of the story where, if you're doing this with, you know, Joe sits down on the plane, my favorite guy, Joe on the plane. He sits down next to you. He's from Syracuse. He's doing this story in his biblical criticism class. And he says, excuse me, are you an Orthodox Jew? I always wanted to meet an Orthodox Jew. I have so many questions. I'm studying this story, the expulsion of Ishmael. It's really so puzzling. I see you Jews. You read this on your high holidays. Let me ask you a few questions about this story. Abraham is a good guy or a bad guy? I don't get it. You say, well, sort of good. And he says, sort of good? Look at the man. I mean, he's supposed to be a nice guy. Look what he does. He sends these guys off in the desert to starve. He doesn't care about them. He gives them a lousy loaf of bread and a canteen. What's he doing? What was he thinking? Is he, uh, th this is the nice guy? Explain this to me. Can you explain this to me? Because my Bible professor in Syracuse, should I tell you what he says about this? He's, you don't want to know what he says about this. Okay, what do you say? Excuse me, Joe says, I have to go to the bathroom. You have five minutes to think about this. What are you going to say to Joe? Like you're reading this on, on Rosh Hashanah. Like what are you going to say? Okay, this is a classic example, I think, of making the mistake of reading a story already knowing the ending. You, whenever you read a story in Tanakh, you have to read it without knowing the ending. Each verse has to be new. You can't, if you know the ending already, you're prejudicing the story. The story, as the characters are going through the story, they don't know the ending. Why should you know the ending? This happens all the time in the Yosef story. One of the problems we always get into in the Yosef and his brother's story is that we know too much. The narrator tells you all sorts of things which no character in the story actually knows. Nobody in the story knows what you know. So if you want to understand what they're thinking, you have to ask yourself, what do I know that they don't know? And then you can understand what they're doing. Over here, you have to ask the same thing. They don't know. Nobody knows the end of the story. Okay, which means you don't know about them starving in the desert. Read the story without you knowing about starving in the desert, and you'll find a very surprising thing. Let's keep on reading. Vayashkem Avram Baboker. Abraham has been painted into a corner. He didn't like it. Not one bit. He went to God. God sided with Sarah. No holds barred. Now he's got to do something he doesn't want to do. And now he sends him out. Vayishkem Avram Baboker. Vayikach lechem v'chem asmaim. He takes a pillow with a little loaf of bread and a canteen of water and gives him to Hagar Samal Shechma places on her shoulder, 
Vesayeled and the child Vayishalcheha and sends her out and she goes and wanders and then then you know the rest of the story there's no more water she cast the child underneath one of the bushes she does, by the way Avram sent her out shalach with a chet right, which is a nicer kind of sending she cast the child down shalach with a chaf a harsher kind of sending seemingly in frustration of what happened to her Right? But she's taking out on her child a harsher version of what even happened to her. She's casting the child down, essentially abandoning him, saying, I'm done with you. Okay, this is the tragedy that happens. Now, let's get back to Joe on the Plains question. Joe on the Plain thinks that Abraham is a maniac. Look at what he's doing. He's, uh, what, he's, uh, you call this a Baal Chesed. He sends her off with nothing to starve in the desert. Let's talk about this for a moment. Let's rebut Joe. Here's the rebuttal to Joe. The rebuttal to Joe is, the text says that Abraham didn't like it. So it's not adding up. Because we know he didn't like this. We know he thought this was a bad idea. So something's not adding up. So then what's he doing? It's like sending her out like this. The answer is, if you put two and two together, you'll find, uh, and three actually, there's one other thing you'll notice. What did Sarah ask to be done? Expeller. What's the Hebrew word for expeller? Expeller. What does Abraham do? It does not say he expelled her. It should have said, Avram got up in the morning, gave the food, and expelled her, just like Sarah said. It doesn't say that. It says, Shalach with a chet. What does Shalach with a chet mean? Not Shalach with a chet. Shalach with a chaf means get rid of. That's not what shalach with a chet means. Shalach with a chet means send. Right? Like a shaliach. When you send a shaliach, what happens? They come back. Think about the history over here, boys and girls. Think about the history. Think about what happened six chapters before. There's a history to Hagar. What happened the last time Hagar ran away? She came back. Look at that. Let's add it all up. Abraham, what was he doing sending her away with a loaf of bread and a canteen? The Baal Chesed couldn't find enough food to send her and a guide to get her, you know, send her with ten camels worth of provisions so she gets to the next city? Of course he could have done that, especially if he didn't like the idea. He was cornered. That's why God never reassures him about the safety of Hagar. Why? Because it's never an issue. Abraham's not worried about the safety of Hagar. That's not why Vayera Hadavar Ma'od. Abraham has it within his ability to give her all the provisions she needs so that she's safe in the desert and can get to the next town. That wasn't what Abraham was worried about. Abraham wasn't even worried about her at all. Not because he wasn't compassionate. Because that wasn't his concern. It was never his concern. He could always provide for that. He was worried, alodot beno, about his child. And listen to how God responds. Don't worry, kibi yitzchak yichar l'chazera. You're going to have an heir. What does that tell you that Abraham was really worried about? The loss of an heir. I invested 13 years into this child. What did he say when, even when he said Yitzchak was going to be born? What was Abraham's response? Lu Yishma I don't need him. If only I had Ishmael, it's all I need. 
Now you're coming and saying it's not going to work out with Ishmael. I'm letting go of my heir. I groomed this kid for 13 years. Enter God. God says, don't worry about the heir. You're going to have the heir. It's Yitzchak. And anyway, this child that you're worried about him being your heir, got to tell you, Abraham, he has a different destiny. He's going to be his own nation. But he's going to be a great nation. Kizarachahu. Your progeny are going to be called after Yitzchak. His destiny is to provide a whole, to branch off and to have an independent destiny. But because he comes from you, he'll be a great nation too. That's just the way it is. This is God signing out. Now what does Abraham do? Abraham gives her a loaf of bread and a canteen of water and places it on her shoulder. What's the message? The message is, how long am I sending you for? if the provisions I give you are a loaf of bread and a canteen of water. About an afternoon, right? Once you use up the canteen and the loaf of bread, what's going to happen? It happened six chapters ago, and it's going to happen again. So Abraham's fulfilling the letter of the law. Na, I'm asking you, please, what was the ninth Nisayan? The ninth of Nisayan was sending away Ishmael. Zat Chazal. You know, I don't want people to say that it didn't work out, this, these last ones over here. So let's do one more sending away an heir. But this time, this time, I'm not telling you there's another one in store. This time I'm telling you to get rid of Yitzchak. Just please, because... The last one you passed by the skin of your teeth. That seems to be what Chazal is saying. Abraham was worried about the heir. He thought she would come back. It was never Vayigar Sheha. He never expelled her. Vayishalcheha. He sent her. Much softer. Something went wrong. Something that Abraham never understood might even happen. What went wrong? Vatelech Vateta. She got lost. There's God. God says, you can't play these games. He's going to have a different destiny. He's not going to be attached to you. You can't get her back. She's gone. You think you can engineer that she's coming back? She's not coming back. She's getting lost. There's only one problem. Look what you did. You tried to keep her. If only you had sent her with all of the food... Everything would, have hand, everything would have happened wonderfully. Now look what happened. She's lost. She's in the desert, and she's facing a near-death experience for her child. She's facing a Nisayun that she cannot handle, that she is not prepared to handle, and that she fails in, that she's not ready for, that Abraham never intended her for her to face, that no one ever intended her to face, but she faces by a cascading of forces outside of her control. Abraham's trying to keep her. Bread and water, come back. But she gets lost. When she's lost, she doesn't know what to do. So now she faces a near-death experience where her Nisayon is to be there with her child. And she fails. She can't be there with her child. So what did Abraham do? So Abraham was in a position where God said, let go of an heir. And Abraham didn't want to let go. And as a result of him not wanting to let go, he put Hagar in a position 
where she couldn't succeed, where she was faced with a near-death of experience for a child where her Nisayan was, to be there for her child, and she could not be. Enter Chazal. Why did the Akedah happen, according to Chazal? Chazal say, the Satan came along. And here's what the Satan had to say. The Satan said, remember that meal Remember that big feast you made for the birth of Yitzchak? What did you ever give to God in that? What really is the Kitrug? What really is the Satan saying? What the Satan saying is, when he cut it to the chase, is that you've always got that the great and terrible question with Abraham's relationship to his children is this. Abraham is waiting his whole life for biological children. It finally happens with Yishmael, and then it happens again with Yitzchak. What is Abraham's role in the world? Abraham's role in the world is he's promised he's going to be a progenitor of a great nation, and he's promised that this nation will have historic theological destiny to bring the word of God to the world at large. His children are not really his children. They're God's children. They're there on a mission. They're there to do a broader mission. When he has a Bechor, when he has a first child, when he has any child, the question which, you all, which anyone has to ask is, what are your children for? Any one of us has this question, really. But Abraham has the question in spades. What are your children for? Children are legacy. But whose legacy? One possibility is that children are my personal legacy. Another possibility is that they are there to help do the family's mission in the world. Abraham's mission is to spread the name of God in the world. What is Yishmael and Yitzchak there for, for Abraham? Is it his personal legacy, or is it the world at large? If God comes and tells you, let go of this child, he's not your legacy, and you're holding on, what's the question? question is, that party you made for him, and you never gave a sacrifice in the party, What's the prosecutor's argument? The prosecutor's argument is, I'm not sure how you're viewing this child. Are you viewing this child as your own personal legacy? Or are you viewing this child as my child, as a child of the world, as a child of God's, to do what your God-given mission is in the world? That's what the child is. What are you holding on to him for? And now I'm going to say, let him go. Let Ishmael go. Let your heir go. And you don't want to let him go? You invested too much. You can't let him go. And as a result of that, there's a woman who gets hurt in a cascade, who puts, gets put in a position where she can't withstand a test about how to handle the near-death experience of a child. What does the Sutton say? It's time for another test. Just to make sure that the first nine, no one can say that the first nine were really nothing. Just let's have one more. And in this test, you're going to have to let go of an heir. But this time, last time it was easy. Last time I told you there's another heir to spare, right? There's another heir in store. Let go of Ishmael because there's Isaac. Now who am I telling you to let go of? The last one, Isaac. And I'm not giving you any other guarantees. Now let's see if you'll let go. And not only that, as a result of your action and not leaving go of the last heir, you put a woman in a position where she was in this near-death experience with her child and didn't manage that. Let's put you in that position. 
where in that experience of loss of an heir, you're also going to have a near-death experience with a child, but it's going to be twice as hard. She didn't have to kill him. All she had to do was stand by her while she died. Let's see you, where you have to be the agent of his death, and now let's see you stand by and not sacrifice the parent-child relationship. And Abraham succeeds in both. Abraham's willing to let go of the heir, and, Abraham's, and Abraham is there for that child at that near-death experience. And that is Abraham's greatness. That's when he passes the tenth test and says, I really passed all the other nine too. I'm just about out of time. But let me just give you a two-minute little epilogue just to put the glaze on this, okay? And then I will let you go. There's one more story besides the Akedah that the expulsion of Ishmael is connected to, and it's the story of Noah and the vineyard. The story of Noah and the vineyard. I just want to show you a little piece of Noah and the vineyard for a second, and you'll get a sense of what I'm talking about. If we had more time, I would show it to you in further, but I'll just show you one little piece. What does the story of the vineyard have to do with the expulsion of Ishmael? There's an unusual choice of phrases in each story. Remember when Shem and Yefet take that cloak and they put it on their shoulders? Remember when Abraham places the, 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 the water and the bread, some al upon her shoulder? It turns out that those two phrases are actually the only two times in all of Tanakh that you have things placed upon shoulders. So you might say, all right, very interesting foreman, a nice coincidence. But the connections don't stop there. There are other hints of connections between the stories. Let's look at the whole phrase. Am I I'm blocking? I apologize. Let's look, at, let's look at the whole phrase in which Hagar's shoulder appears. Turns out that every other verb in that sentence is borrowed from the story of Noah's vineyard. Look carefully. Let green equal the verbs that appear only in the expulsion of Ishmael. Let yellow equal the verbs that appear in both stories and read both stories together. Okay? Vayashkem Avram Baboker. Abraham wakes up in the morning. That verb, Vayashkem, appears only in the expulsion of Ishmael. But look at the next verb. Right? Vayikach lechem v'chemat mayim. Now look in the vineyard. Vayikach shem vayefet et asimla. Now look at the next verb in the expulsion of Ishmael. Vayitan al Hagar. He gives it to Hagar. That only appears there. But look at the next verb. Som al shichma. Right? Vayasimu al-shem shnehem. She places it, uh, the, excuse me, they place the cloak on both of their shoulders when they are going to cover their father. Next verb, vayishalcheha, and he sends her away, which doesn't appear in the vineyard. But look at the next verb. Right? Vayelchu achronit, and they walk backwards. Vatelech vateta bibimbar. You see, all the yellows, it's every other verb in the sentence is borrowed from the vineyard. Okay, it looks like something is going on, but it looks like even more is going on. Shame and Yefet took the Simla, right? Look at who's doing the taking up here. Both Shame and Yefet 
Noah's favored two sons. Now, look down below. Do you see a counterpart to Shem and Yefet right after the Vayikach? Remember the two Vayikachs? Vayikach, Shem, Vayefet. But of course there was another son besides Shem and Yefet, wasn't there? Who was he? Cham. Look at the Vayikach with the expulsion of Ishmael. Vayikach who? Vayikach Lechem V'chemat Mayim. What are the letters which are appearing over and over again in Lechem and Chemat Mayim? Cham and Cham, Chet Mem, Chet Mem. As if there's a double entendre there, that in taking Lechem and Chemat Mayim, what is he really taking for? There's another way to read those words. Vayikach, not Lechem. Remember the Torah has no vowelization. Vayikach Lechem, Lechem. He's taking for his chum. Shaman Yefet took. Now Abraham is taking for his chum. Who's his chum? Who is chum? Chum is the expelled child. Who is Ishmael? The expelled child. He's taking for his expelled child. He's trying to help his expelled child by taking the lechem chemet He doesn't want to let go of his expelled child. What does it all mean? Perhaps Abraham was seeking to do something similar in the story of the expulsion of Ishmael. What was he doing? Right? Shem and Yefet were taking for the benefit of Noah. What were they doing? They were trying to help father. What is Abraham doing? Also trying to help father. But whose father? Himself. In taking the lechem v'chemat mayim, he's doing in a certain way what Shem and Yefet were doing, right? except that he's taking for his chum but the purpose of what Shem and Yefet are doing is trying to act for the benefit and honor of father. Abraham is also trying to act for the benefit and honor of father, preserving the heir, preserving the Cham in his family. If you keep on reading, Shem and Yefet, another way of thinking about it, were trying to protect the honor of father in a disastrous situation. Abraham is also trying to protect, so to speak, the honor of father in a disastrous situation, facing the expulsion of one of his children. I want to leave you with this, right? And again, remember the Garesh. Abraham and right? Sarah had said, Garesh at Amazot. Remember, it's just by Yishalchecha. He only sends her away, not Garesh. So then we have the theory. Here's the evidence for the theory. If Abraham, like Shem and Yefet before him, were seeking to contain the damage in a difficult situation, Abraham's efforts fail. Shem and Yefet may have succeeded, but Abraham fails. I want you to take a look at this. Remember where the plan goes awry when Hagar wanders. I want you to focus on that and see it as a seesaw when Hagar wanders. For those of you who can't see it over there, you can come later on and see it if you want. But here's what I want to suggest. It's a very complex literary pattern, but I just want to leave you with this. There is literally a seesaw going on here. Abraham's efforts to have a return backfire. How does the Torah describe his efforts to having return backfire? Right? The tar- water gets used up. Ishmael's close to dying. The Torah signifies the backfiring through a fascinating literary device. This is a literary device. It takes just about every word used to describe Avram sending away Hagar, and uses these words again after Vateta, backwards, right, and in corrupted form. So let me just show you. If you have Vateta 
as the middle word in the seesaw. It's the fulcrum. It's where the plan goes awry. Everything before Vateta is Abraham planning to get back Ishmael. Everything after Vateta is when she's lost and things start falling apart. But look at the words. Let's start with this. Right? Look at Vatelech. You see Vatelech? Where is a corrupted version of Vatelech right after Vateta? Take the words Vatelech, switch the order, and what do you get? Right? Vayichlu. Vatelech, the walking, right, becomes Vayichlu. The water got used up. Now look at this word. Vayishalcheha. Can you find Vayishalcheha after Vateta? There it is. The corrupted form is Vatashlech which, of course, is phonetically similar, but is a corrupted version. Instead of just sending nicely, there is the nasty casting. Now look at the etayeled. Do you find etayeled? Right, etayeled right before, right after. Now keep on going. What about shikma? Where do you find bashikma after? There it is, right? Sichim, tachad achada sichim. Sichim is a corrupt, the, the, the bramble branches are the corrupted version. The nice shoulder of Hagar turns into the bramble branches under which this child is faced. Now, if you put it all together, right, here's, right, al shikma turns dundun tachatachada sichim. If you put it all together, do you see the pattern? Here's the pattern. Put it all on one line. Right? It's a little mini chiasm. There's a fulcrum, but it's all falling apart. Abraham's plan is falling apart. What does this mean? I think it means a lot for the understanding of the Akedah. What does it mean ultimately for Rosh Hashanah? Right? I'll leave you to think about that. One of the things it means to me, maybe, is that one of the messages of Rosh Hashanah, I think, beyond everything, the real message of Din, the real message of seeing God as king in the world, the real message is that God runs the world, right? And Abraham succeeds in that message in the Akedah. Really, Abraham's success is with that message of Rosh Hashanah. God runs the world. God, that if I have Amuna in God, I believe that I have the power to be here for you, Yitzchak, and to be here for God, and I, these contradict, it's up to God. God will have to figure it out. But my job is this, and God's job is that, and I'm doing my job, and God's going to have to worry about his job. It is Abraham's willing to relinquish the reins and say, God runs the world, and therefore I can do my job without having to concentrate on his job. His job is to figure out what happens at the top of the mountain. My job is to be there for everyone on the way up the mountain. That's a lesson Abraham learns in the Akedah. It's not a lesson, I would submit, that he, learns in, that he succeeds in in the expulsion of Ishmael. His failure, to the extent that he fails, to the extent that Chazal say that aspersions are cast on that ninth test, is because of that very issue, right? Will you leave it up to God or will you play God? When God says, don't worry about your heir, you can let go, what if you don't let go? What if you say, I'm not letting go, I'm sending you away, but with... Uh, enough that maybe you can get there and we'll see if you can get, come back. It's a tentative attempt to try to do what's really in God's court. And maybe that's one of the real messages of Rosh Hashanah. If God runs the world, God runs the world. You have to understand what's your job 
and what's God's job. And if it's God's job, it's God's job. And if you let God do his job, you can more easily focus on what your job is. Have a good rest of